Hi, psychology nerds, and welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, one of the hosts of Psychology and Stuff, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host. She's the chair of the UW-Green Bay Psychology Program, my friend, Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dungess. How's it going, G? It is going terrific. I'm so excited um, to talk about our topic today, a super important uh, topic with our colleagues uh, who teach in the sport, exercise, and performance psychology master's program. And we're so excited uh, to have them here today. Yes. Yeah. This is really, I've been excited for this episode all semester long since we started talking about it. This is, you know, we'll, we'll get to it in just a sec, but this is something that we've been talking about, frankly, for a while, as far as a lot of current events over the summer. Uh, related to athletics. Um, and yeah, just something I'm really excited about. So uh, let's let's bring Kelsey in right away. Kelsey, how's it Hello. going? Hello, it's going well. Good. What are you up to these days? Oh gosh, <laughs> I guess <laughs> what am I not? Um, <laughs> all sorts of things, you know, it's, it's that final stretch of your undergraduate degree. So it's like all of the things, working, school, volunteering, everything, but I love it. it. It's, it's a lot, but I also love it. And I feel like I feel very fulfilled in my life right now. So I'm rolling with it. Well, I mean, that's good. You know, it doesn't have to be the final stretch though. I mean, we can, we can keep you we can around. You in this you, internship. <laughs> yeah, if you want to just stay, like you're deciding it's the final stretch. You can stick around for another year, maybe two. You're right. You know, I, I'm not necessarily opposed. However, my financial aid is. So (laughs) we're at the point where I, I don't know, I have almost 180 credits. So I gotta, (laughs) I gotta get going. (laughs) I mean, it's, it sounds like you probably just want to even out around 200 is what I would. That's one way thing about it. I like nice round numbers. And uh, so it feels like you just, you just do that. You're right. You're right. Yeah. It's tempting. I'll think okay. about it just okay. for you guys. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. I think we should get to our guests and, and get to the topic. We have two great guests today, both from the Sport, Exercise, and Performance Psychology Program at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. First, the chair of that program earned his PhD in sports psychology from the University of North Texas. He researches the psychosocial aspects of sport, exercise, and health. It's Dr. Alan Chu. How's it going, Alan? Doing well. Happy to be here. Yeah, happy to have you here. Um, So our second guest, also joining us, earned her PhD from the University of Iowa in Health and Human Physiology with an emphasis in psychology of sport and physical activity. She researches motivation, mental skills training, and health promotion, and is a certified mental performance consultant. Please welcome Dr. Joe Morrissey. How's it going, Joe? Hello, it's going great. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, this is, uh, I'm really excited, as we mentioned before, to talk about this. So let's kind of get to, to the big stuff that happened over the summer when it comes to professional athletics and mental health. So, um, and at least these are the two things I know about. And so maybe there are other things that sort of prompted this conversation as well. But first, um, uh, international tennis star Naomi Osaka dropped out of uh, Wimbledon over the summer. And I think my understanding is that she first 
dropped out of the French Open. Um, she was uh, threatened with expulsion uh, from the tournament. Uh, and then because she refused to do uh, press briefings, I think, uh, after she so she said those weren't good for her and she wanted to stop and they threatened to expel her. And she said, you know what, I think I should just be done. And then she she decided not to participate in Wimbledon either. My memory is that she did participate in the Olympics, um, but I could be wrong uh, about that. Then the other one, the other case is that a few weeks later, um, Simone Biles decided during the Olympic competition um, that she was not going to participate in the gymnastics final and maybe the all around finals and some other things. Also, I think um, stating mental health as a, a reason for her decision. And all of this really started, I, I think, a, a national conversation, not always a pleasant national conversation, but a national conversation about uh, athletes' mental health. Um, and so I guess that's what we want to talk about today is, I guess, let's start with what were your reactions? Alan, we'll, we'll start with you. What was your reaction when you were reading this and sort of digesting all of this news? Yeah, I think the one from Simone Biles was kind of like a shocking one initially, you know, kind of hearing, I mean, it's just the goals of the goals, you know, everyone thought she was going to win a couple of gold medals again, and everybody had high hope that she's going to lead the gymnastic team really well. Uh, on the day, on the mo in the morning that I heard about the news, I was shocked initially, but just uh, hearing more and more from her own perspective, I realized how challenging it was for her these past couple of years with what happened um, with the USA Gymnastics, all the um, maltreatment that had happened, but also just all the stress and struggle that she had uh, throughout COVID as well. Uh, and she's um, relatively young, um, you know, age-wise, but for gymnastics, she's getting like toward the end of her career. So I think the postponement of Olympics also put some stress on her. Uh, and I think, Naomi Osaka hearing the news initially, um, somewhat shocking, not too much. You know, she kept uh, alluded to her mental health issue a little bit, uh, but you know, it was somewhat new that it was about the press conference that I think triggered a lot of conversation. Um, and in the sports psychology community, we have been having a lot of conversation as well, mostly supportive. Um, but then, of course, there are also some other outside voices that we try to juggle. You know, how we handle those conversations. Um, so kind of summarizing, uh, my thought is that, you know, those two incidences definitely trigger a lot of conversation. Um, in some way, it's good for our community to think about how we can best support athletes uh, the best way possible regarding their performance as well as mental health. How about you, Joe? What, what jumped out at you as you heard these stories over the summer? Yeah, I would say, um, so this semester I'm teaching a sociology of sport class. And one of the topics that um, we focus on that is kind of a theme through each of the weeks is this like great sport ethic that we have within the sporting context about, you know, one of those messages is, you know, no pain, no gain. You have to be really tough. And so it is very challenging for fans and even for participants who align themselves with those mentalities to hear some of our elite athletes come out in in 
really challenge that mentality a little bit. And I mean, be brave enough to come out and say, Hey, like I am not in a great mental space right now in order to perform as best that I can. And I think, um, you know, with, with Simone Biles, um, many folks may not have remembered all of the stress with USA Gymnastics and what has been going on in that organization for the last couple of years on top of what Alan said with COVID um, and then being on this elite stage is one of those other factors that, you know, behind the scenes, uh, trying to cope with all of that and um, has just has to be extremely challenging and stressful um, for, for anyone involved in gymnastics. And so I think, again, just like these two athletes really challenging the sport ethic mentality that, that we've created, that you have to be tough um, and you have to push through either, you know, some type of physical injury and, or, you know, mental challenge. And the fact that they were a little bit opposite of that, I think took a lot of folks by surprise. What is it about uh, sport and, and high level athletics that you think is creating this kind of um, sport ethic or like a, the, the no pain, no gain uh, and, and also like avoiding conversations about mental health or men, the, the mental part of the game at all. Like, I don't think I heard much about that until this past year, like in the, in the general public. So what is it about high level sport that is creating an environment like this? Yeah, I think the competitive environment uh, require athlete to be so-called on all the time, you know, they are not allowed to really have many day offs, you know, they have to practice, practice, practice um, until they are able to compete at the highest level and have results. You know, it's a little bit different than uh, in school. It's more about you studying hard, you uh, having your own schedule um, and trying to do well. But in, in sports, it's a lot of, you know, working with coaches, uh, being at practice, uh, and there are a lot of monitoring from different um, like coaches but also organizations to, to have hope that you can win medals, you can win the world championship. So I think that competitive environment really emphasize um, push through the pain, you know, physical pain, you know, the, the culture is that if you are not uh, having pain or you are not, you know, training until you are like sick, you are almost not working hard enough type of mentality. Uh, in some way, that's a little bit, sometimes, unfortunately, a little bit truth to it that, you know, you have to work so hard in order to be winning medal, but at the same time, it shouldn't be that hard that they suffer physically and, and mentally. Uh, but that's just the culture that uh, sport brought us. But I think the other piece is uh, if you admit that you're weak, uh, you might lose your playing time or you may not be able to compete, you know, because now the coaches, do not trust you or they do not uh, think that you, are, you have the ability to perform well. Even though now research has shown, has shown that even after they have mental health issues, they can still compete well, but they just need the support in order to do so. Uh, I think Michael Phipps was a great example. You know, before the uh, Rio Olympics, he had quite a few different incidences with uh, substance use and depression and suicidal thought and 
after seeing a counselor, he was able to come back and still win a couple gold medals, have a good um, career uh, ending in, in the Olympic um, before he actually retired. So I think what um, what sport tells us is that we cannot be weak, but at the same time, you know, we, we need to be actually addressing that in order to compete uh, at the best level possible. Yeah, I would just add, um, in general, especially at the elite level, sport is about power and performance, um, rather than maybe something like pleasure and participation. And so to Alan's point that that really is the culture of sport is that you need to do anything and everything to perform at your best and be the most powerful type of athlete that you can. So, and that culture is bred from a very young age. And so it just gets reinforced as we move up the competition level from youth sport into high school, into collegiate sport, and then, um, you know, professional sport and Olympic sport is just, it continues to reinforce uh, these messages of, do anything to be the most powerful and perform, perform the best. So I know both of you study motivation um, in different contexts, and I'm wondering how do, how does mental health impact motivation in athletes, either positively or negatively? Yeah, so when we talk about mental health, it's not just a lack of uh, mental illness or mental disease, so to speak, it's like a continuum. You know, you can um, have good mental health, good mental well-being, meaning that you are motivated, you are able to uh, feel good about your life, you feel fulfilled, uh, like what Kelsey mentioned earlier, when you have find meaning and purpose in what you do. Um, so I think that mental health play a lot of um, play a big role into motivation because if you feel the fulfillment that I mentioned you feel like you are doing something meaningful and purposeful every day. You feel good about what you're doing now, but also about the future. You definitely are more driven to practice and to compete versus for athletes who do not have mental health, you know, a lot of time, they feel a little bit hopeless. They feel like they are not able to have the energy to, to practice. Uh, and in this scenario, if they are forced to keep practicing every day, I think it's really detrimental to them, uh, not only do they not have mental health, but the, the practice and competition are not going to go well. And it's going to be a downward spiral that, you know, they don't compete well. That's why they feel even worse motivation and worse mental health. Uh, and the best thing I think they, they could do is to take a break. Uh, like what Osaka Laomi did, you know, just to pull out from a couple of uh, competition, knowing that even there may be a lot of criticism from the world, but that's the best for her mental health and motivation moving forward. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm curious though, because in both of these cases, we're talking about flat out superstars, right? We're talking about two people who are essentially at the highest level of the, the sport has ever seen in some cases. And part of the issue is, so the consequences in some ways aren't as severe to them if they decide not to participate and I mean, they, they, this, there are uh, consequences from society and, and how they are judged, I get. But if you're a tennis player who's just on the verge of not making the French Open, if you're uh, if you're the, the seventh person on the gymnastics team, 
um, so did Tom. The consequences are very different to you if you say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to sit this one out for my mental health. And, and in some ways, I mean, that might be, you might signal something to coaches, you might signal something to trainers, to other athletes uh, about the kind of competitor you are in a way that, that has very real detrimental consequences on your career. Is that, am I, Am I right? I see you both nodding. Is that is there some truth there? And if so, how do we how do we account for that or or adjust to accommodate people being able to take care of themselves? Yeah, I would. You're absolutely right, and that's um a, that's a conversation that that I've had as we've sort of talked about these athletes is that um, if there were athletes in both of their positions, so to speak, but not um, as well known that their decision-making process might be very different uh, as to whether they, they decide to push through and continue to compete. Um, because going to the Olympics training wise, I mean, just the cost of it is extremely expensive and, and many Olympians are not millionaires and do not get paid a lot of money. So the decision-making process is completely different depending on each and every individual athlete and, you know, their, their background in, in life circumstance. So, um, I think really like supporting the decision-making process is an important thing to consider here. Um, weighing all the pros and cons and being a source of support that is non-judgmental and can be as opening to hear from the athletes and help them feel autonomous in making the right decision that is best for them. Um, and then with that decision-making process has really helped them develop the coping skills for whatever consequences are associated with the decision that they make. Because um, to your point, um, there may be some positive outcomes with that decision that's made there's likely going to be negative outcomes that are associated with that decision, but you want to get them to a place where they're able to cope with whatever consequences and implications occur because of the decision that was made. And I think uh, to add to that, that need to be like a multi-layer support. It cannot be just about the sport team itself or just the coaches themselves. It have to come from, uh, maybe higher up administration, including uh, the Sport Institute, uh, the NGB, like USA Gymnastics, USA Tennis, um, in a way that there's policy and procedure in place to promote mental health. Uh, for example, uh, now more and more sport teams and organizations are doing like a mental health day. Um, you know, it could be days that everybody not only take a break, but also actively doing some type of uh, maybe relaxation, mindfulness, uh, gratitude exercises, doing it as a team to promote that this is part of what we do uh, as athletes, as coaches, as organizations. Uh, so that we value this as our regular practices. It's not just, um, you know, fixing when problems happen, but we, we build on mental health uh, and make it part of the conversation constantly. And Canada, uh, Canada actually do a really good job uh, they have established a Canadian Center for Mental Health in Sport for a couple of years now, uh, and they talk about the ecological model. So it comes from supporting athletes, supporting coaches to support athletes, and then supporting different 
uh, NGB, uh, and there are some kind of a bit oversight within the organization as well as outside of the organization to make sure um, every single team is doing a good job of promoting that. And I think uh, with those multi-layer support, that's how we can uh, really make, like to Ryan's point, you know, make athletes who want to compete for that spot, but not yet to be able to feel, okay, I, I don't need to worry as much about the implication if I, I um, say that I have mental health issues, you know, because I know that people are gonna support the, me the way that I, I need it, rather than making it as a punishment. If I say I, I have mental health issues and I'm not gonna be able to make the team. Um, so I think that's the, the part that we can move forward with the ecological uh, multi-layer support. Mm -hmm. So is this where sports psychology uh, enters the picture? Um, like both in like promoting like mental health and wellness uh, before issues happen, but also uh, is a sports psychologist someone who is struggling with mental health issues? Is that a person they would go to uh, in that instance as well? Like what is the role of sports psychology in this topic? Yeah, so there are mainly two different type of practitioners in sports psychology. One type is licensed sports psychologists. They are trained in both uh, performance issue as well as mental health issue. So they can work with athletes on a spectrum from, for example, depression, anxiety, all the way to enhancing performance. So then one of, one of the main role is to help athletes uh, with increasing their well-being in general, as well as uh, help them when athletes are suffering from mental health issue. The other type of practitioners uh, that me and Joe are both in you know, is the role of uh, mental performance consultant, meaning that we mostly help athletes with enhancing the performance. Uh, but if we know that they have mental health issue, we may do referral. Uh, we still help them build skills, uh, like doing what we just mentioned, mindfulness, gratitude exercises to help them enhancing uh, their well-being in general before problem happen. I think that's the approach that we want, you know, starting from, you know, whenever they start playing sports, we can introduce those concepts to help them build a skill that uh, mental health issues do not happen or they, they do not suffer from uh, depression. That's what we want the most. And just to explain a little bit now, uh, USOPC, uh, the US Olympic and Paralympic Committee, they actually divide up two, two departments. Initially, they only have the sports psychology department that um, licensed sports psychologists work on both mental health and performance issue, but they find out it was too challenging for them to juggle both role, and there were only seven of them with however many athletes we have in, in, in the country at the national level. So now they have a separate mental health department to only focus on mental health. There are about 20 to 30 licensed practitioners across the country to help athletes uh, specifically on mental health so that the sports psychologists could work a little bit more on the performance issue. And I think that help athletes be more comfortable reaching out to a variety of practitioners, because we know that uh, based on their geographical area, based on their culture, their age, you know, they may prefer different type of practitioners. So I think definitely that's a role that sports psychologists have, no matter if we are more performance or mental health focused, uh, but uh, Eventually, you know, it's uh, really need to understand how uh, we can help athletes be able to reach out and have the referral process as well. 
Yeah, the only thing I would add, um, G, to your to your point is really encouraging athletes to consult with sports psychologists or CMPCs in a preventative maintenance type of approach rather than a reactionary, because that, that's often what we're seeing there is that um, athletes often approach us in a reactionary, something has happened and now I need help. But to Alan's point, really trying to focus more on you know, becoming mentally tough or resilient ahead of time so that you can better cope with what situations come up. Yeah, so I'm, uh, this question is going to sound naive, and, and I'm not naive. I understand full well that we'll never get away from some of these things, but it also feels like there are some structural changes that need to happen to kind of our expectations of professional athletes. And, you know, I think one of those is um, what I think is interesting is that the thing that started sort of launched a lot of these conversations was Osaka and specifically the, the briefings, the press briefings. And, you know, it's so interesting to me because I think, first of all, I think these press briefings are, are, oftentimes just nonsense, right? I mean, there's no reason for them in the sense that we don't really learn anything, but also you're taking athletes oftentimes in like a terrible, terrible moment and putting them out in front of the world to sort of talk about their, and I'm going to put this in quotes, even though people can't see it, but their failure as an athlete. And I think about the kind of what the suffering that that must go. I mean, can you imagine right now, if you, right after a a class, if you had to do a national press conference on sort of what you did or didn't do as you were trying to teach your course and people were sort of nitpicking the mistakes you made uh, along the way. And, oh, hey, I I noticed you dropped the ball on your definition of this, or you missed so-and-so had their hand up and you didn't ask them a question and you had to break down your failings. Um, Like, so I guess the, the, Part of what I'm asking, I realize I'm supposed to be asking a question right now. Instead, I'm just on a rant. But, but one is, I guess, one, am I right that, those, that this is a place where people really suffer? But two, um, what will it take for us to fully recognize that some of these structural changes need to, to take place, that we, we need to think about how, what we are asking of professional athletes while still acknowledging that we're up against capitalism and that makes it difficult to, <laughs> to make any real change. Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of going back to the point about challenging the culture, uh, going from top down, you know, to your point about the press conference, maybe think about a way to better structure it, you know, whether it's better to maybe postpone a couple hours or whether it may be better to do it not in a space that with a hundred people, you know, maybe a little less people in, in the conference, there may be just some procedural things that we can shift a little bit. And I think the tennis world has been discussing a little bit because of what Naomi Osaka has proposed. And I think we can do a lot in other sports as well, uh, how we can structure the press conference better or even pre-game interview, you know, are there ways that we can structure that better? Are, are there space that we can allow more autonomy and more support for the athlete to say what they want to do rather than being a, um, a pressure or, or something that just add on to the stress that athlete already have? Um, so I think it's the structural change uh, that Ryan mentioned definitely is what 
uh, we need to do it, and sports psychologists can play a role. Uh, other many professionals can play a role as well. Yeah, I think um, absolutely with structural changes, like I think it's important to recognize that that is going to take some time. And so if there are athletes who are listening to this, um, one thing that I think in the meantime, if it takes a long time to see these changes, um, is really learning the skill of both physiological and emotional regulation. Because when you step off of a court um, or the field, I mean, you are just all over the place, regardless of if you've won or you've lost. And now, Ryan, to your point, like, okay, like you've got to manage all of those emotions and that physiological response and now put yourself in front of um, a, a lot of people and, you know, uh, essentially millions of people who are watching your press conference, how can we get them to a place where they can regulate their emotions and, and physiology and a physiological response and gather themselves to have to do this? Because yes, like it would be great if things changed, I think that's going to be slow to change. So in the meantime, giving, you know, again, athletes a, a coping strategy until hopefully we do see some of those um, systemic changes take place. So this has been an excellent, excellent conversation. I'm really, really thankful that you both took the time for this. So fascinating, fascinating stuff. Are we ready for five questions? Kelsey, are you ready? Ready. Are, are you guys ready? I, I, no, I'm nervous. This is the most nervous. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like the press conference, right? After. Yeah, exactly. So all the, all the other stuff was easy. Okay, so <laughs> we have. I am gonna go ahead and start with you, Alan. So, if you could interview one person, dead or alive, who would it be, and why? Well, I guess now we talk about Simone Biles. There will be Simone Biles, just because. <laughs> Yeah, you know, experience so much, and especially the uh, the physiological and biological issues that uh, she also experienced. Uh, not being able to do her regular um, routine in gymnastics just got me curious about uh, how that happened. I, she broke it down a little bit, but I would be curious to interview her and just know about you know how the whole thing you know ha happened to her. Well, that Can was I go perfect. with you, Alan. I want to go with. <laughs> Awesome. Okay. So perfect. Joe, if you could witness any historical event, what would you want to see? Oh my goodness. Any historical event. Um, does that does it have to be sport related? No. It does not have to be sport related. Okay. Um I I would say, I mean, I am gonna go, I am gonna go sport related just because. I'm going to be selfish here. Um, and I would actually love to see Serena Williams play in the Wimbledon. Like Wimbledon is something that I have always wanted to go to and wanted to see. And if I could see her in Wimbledon, that would just be the best thing ever. So I'd have to go back in time a little bit. Um, but sport related, I'll stick there and say Wimbledon. Awesome. I'm sensing a theme here, but that's fine. So <laughs> no, just, just include me in all of these. So, yeah. so far I'm, I'm your plus one on these. <laughs> yeah. 
I need, sorry, I need to flex real quickly and say that I actually got to watch John McEnroe and Pete Sampras play doubles together in the Davis Cup when it was in Minnesota. And it was at the end of McEnroe's career and the very beginning of Pete Sampras's career and two of my favorite players of all time and got to watch them play together. It was amazing. Oh, I'm jealous. <laughs> wow, that is cool. <laughs> all right. Let's see. Ellen, what is your biggest pet peeve? I guess I need to go with people calling me play ping pong rather than table tennis. <laughs> Just to explain to the audience a little bit, you know, I'm a table tennis player. I compete uh, until, I mean, I still compete now, but I was a collegiate athlete. So table tennis is what we call in a sport. Um, we don't do it in the basement. We do it in the actual gym. Uh, there are more like regulation uh, rules and things like that. Even the pedal and equipment are different than ping pong. Is what people do it just for fun at the basement uh, with family. Uh, so when people call me play ping pong, you know, I, that's kind of like my pet peeve. Everybody knows you. Yeah, I would say I play table tennis, but not but not ping pong. <laughs> awesome. If you think t ping pong is fun with family, you've never played with my family. Uh, <laughs> it is a very competitive activity not at all fun right yeah, they're a little cruel to me so they can be can see the table tennis right all right um joe what is one or two items on your bucket list one or two items on my bucket list um i would say probably well I kind of already answered that like going to Wimbledon was would be an item on on my bucket list I mean it it certainly is um and I'm gonna so I'm gonna go off of Alan's first question and I would say to either have dinner with or interview Hannah Storm she mm -hmm. is she is my role model um has been right my role model for a very young age um, and for a while, I thought maybe that I did actually want to be a sports journalist slash newscast. So right now I'm kind of like living the dream a little bit through psych and stuff. So I very much, <laughs> I guess this is like a bucket list item for me in a way, right? <laughs> for that. Um, but honestly, I would say either to have dinner or interview um, Hannah Storm, just because she's been a trailblazer in terms of, um, uh, you know, a female presence within the sporting world and has had a great deal of uh, success. And I just respect her journalism so much. Um, and again, like presence in, in sport. Awesome. Okay. Final question. So you guys are doing great. Okay. Final <laughs> question. Um, Joan Allen, if you were to write a self-help book, what would the topic be? And whoever, well, how about Joe? How about you start? All right. Um, so if I had to write a self-help book, it, it would be on behavior change. It would absolutely be on um, behavior change uh, from like a health promotion perspective in, uh, I would say, you know, adherence and discipline and habit stacking and just creating a routine and managing our time in order to, I mean, really like be our best selves and perform our best on a daily basis from um, engaging in the, a daily ritual of positive behaviors. So that, that would be my self-help book. Awesome. Alan? 
Yeah, I think I will write a book. That actually has been in my mind you know, to write a book about psychological skill training and motivation in table tennis. So there's a lot of books about how to use psychological skills in tennis, in uh, track and field, in gymnastics, but there's been not really established book in table tennis yet. So just coming from the background, being an athlete, you know, I would love to just give back and write a book to help uh, young table tennis athletes to learn how to be confident, how to be able to uh, keep the motivation in, in training and competing. And now talking about this, I guess I have to keep myself accountable to to write on my proposal of prison <laughs> in the next, next couple of months, hopefully. So if any publishers are out there listening, we have two books <laughs> on, on tap to be written. So let's go. Yeah. <laughs> I guess pretty neat that we, those questions were not target, targeting sport, but we all bring it back to, to, to sport. Right. We need the answers. It's all we know. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you both so very much for taking the time today. That was really fun. What, uh, where can people find out more about you or about the SEP program, um, social media, website, all that? Somebody tell me. Yeah, so for the SEP program, uh, you can type uwgb.edu slash SEPP. SEPP stands for SEP, uh, Sport Exercise and Performance Psychology. You can go to our webpage there. We also have a Twitter account uh, at uwgb underscore SEP, SEPP. Um, and then I have a personal Twitter account, Dr. Alan Chu, D-R-A-L-A-N-C-H-U. If you want to follow me, I don't tweet too much, but once in a while, um, all the tweets I tweet are a good tweet. Let's, let's end with that. <laughs> Perfect. And then I would just say um, sort of like a branch or a program that we're getting started here at UWGB is our exercises medicine on campus, um, which is through the American College of Sports Medicine. And so we have an Instagram account and our handle is UWGB underscore EIM. And then you can find our webpage through UWG's webpage. Just go to UWGB and just search exercises medicine, and that'll be the easiest way to find it. That is great. Thank you both so very much. Um, that's wonderful. Hey, Kelsey, uh, where can people find out more about what you are doing for Psych and Stuff? Yeah, all of our handles on social are just going to be Psych and Stuff or at Psych and Stuff. So check us out on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Although YouTube's a little bit different, but as long as you go on too. Um, we don't have an official handle on YouTube yet. We need more of you to follow us. Sorry, I'm just saying. But so if you want to see all of our stuff, yeah, there's a big old list on our Instagram as well. But otherwise, you can find it all on, on those socials. Excellent. And you can actually listen to the podcast on Facebook now. This is a new feature Facebook has been offering. It sounds like they're going to build a podcast app in the near future as well. So you can find us there and listen at Psych and Stuff. G, your handle is... I am at G-E-O-R-J-E-A-N-N-A-W-D on all of the, the socials. And I just have to give a shout out to Exercises Medicine on campus. I am in the middle of the 31-day uh, faculty and staff challenge, and I have risen to the challenge of daily motivation to, um, to move. Uh, 
that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I have been motivated to move every day. And so it's been a really great program and we're so happy to have it on campus. That is really cool. I need to know lots more about this. Maybe Joe, at some point, you'd be willing to come back and talk uh, more about this initiative because it sounds really great. Absolutely. Um, so I, uh, I am at Anger Professor. You can find me on in a lot of places, mostly on TikTok, arguing with authoritarians. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. So thank you very much. That's at Anger Professor. Psychology and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. The executive producer is Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salick, and our graphic designer is Kimberly Bleese. Our intern is Kelsey Engelhardt. Thank you, Kelsey. Special thanks to today's guests, Drs. Joe Morrissey and Ellen Chu. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uw.com gb.edu slash podcast to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Georgina Wilson-Dungess. Keep being amazing. Amazing.